Welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. And whether you are joining us from the lobby, we see you out there, or online or in this room, we are glad you are here. If you are new, the last five weeks, we have been walking through the book Song of Solomon, and we have been covering some interesting topics, to say the least. We've talked about singleness. We've talked about dating. We've talked about manhood. We've talked about womanhood. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about sex. Well, today, what we're going to talk about is what always happens when you put men and women together, and there's dating, and there's marriage, and there's sex. Conflict. Now, let's start here. Do Christian couples fight? Some of you fought on the way here. <laughs> there is nothing like a good on-your-way-to-church fight. You know, I'm the only one that's getting the kids ready. Why are you keep making us late all the time? I spoke with a woman this, this, this week in our church who 15 years ago, she and her husband stopped riding to church together because they always had fights on the way to church. <laughs> this past, or a week ago, my wife Olivia and I had a couple come to our house, a godly couple, and they were coming over to talk about a conflict. And once they got there, we learned that they had had a conflict on the way to come talk about a conflict. And when, when we do, when Olivia and I do premarital counseling, one of the things that we like to ask is, so, so tell us about how you guys resolve conflict. Do you, do you guys fight very often? And sometimes, particularly if the couple hasn't known each other that long, they'll, they'll grin and they'll look at each other real cute and they'll say, actually, we don't really fight. <laughs> and Olivia and I just laugh. And, and what, what we ultimately tell them is that conflict in marriage is inevitable. Conflict in any meaningful relationship that you have is inevitable. And the passage we're going to be looking at today is going to be Song of Solomon chapter 5. And in this chapter, the conflict that we're going to be looking at is in the context of a marriage relationship. But even if you're not married, there are a lot of helpful principles that we can see in this chapter. And so conflict in marriage is inevitable. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons to that reasons that conflict is inevitable. One of the reasons is you are a sinner and you are selfish and you struggle to communicate. Like we just saw in that incredible video, you struggle to communicate without wounding the other. You like your free time. And what happens when you put two sinners together, two selfish people together, there's conflict. So Solomon, so he wrote Song of Solomon, but he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, one of the things he's talking about is friendship. And he says that when it comes to friendship, he says two is better than one. Because if one of you falls down, the other is there to help you up. And then he also says, he says, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to help him up. And so he says two is better than one, but we understand that two is harder than one. Because in the marriage relationship, you have two opinions. You have his opinion and then you have the right opinion. <laughs> in marriage, you have two ways of doing things. You have his way of doing things, and then you have the right way of doing things. You have two, two ways of disciplining kids, two different family dynamics, two different holiday preferences. And when there's two, it tends to make things more challenging. So I love being married, but when I was single, my life was much more simple. When I got married, I had one bowl, just one. I poured cereal into that bowl in the morning. I ate the cereal. I rinsed it out with water, no soap, because I was the only one using it. <laughs> and then I would put it back up, and that was just my routine. If I wanted soup, same bowl. If I wanted salad, same bowl. And when I got married, Olivia said, you were throwing that nasty bowl away. I said, but I love this bowl. And, she, and then she gave me a look, and it didn't take me long to figure out what that look meant. And so I was like, all right, we'll throw the bowl away. 
And so going from one to two, it changed some things. And two people together, what it does is it leads to conflict. And so if you've got your Bibles, you go ahead and grab those and flip to Song of Solomon chapter five. Song of Solomon chapter five, that's where we're gonna be today. So chapter five and chapter six are both about conflict. One fourth of this entire book is on conflict. Now, before we jump in, I just want to acknowledge that even though some of these conflicts are, are fun to joke about and it's easy to kid about, for some of you, the marriage in your, or the conflict in your marriage right now is not a joke. For some of you, you feel like the last few months or the last few years has been nothing but just arguing all the time. Some of you feel like you've just had it up to here at this point and you feel like you're this close to being ready to give up. Some of you, your spouse never apologizes for anything, which is a problem. And so what you need to hear me say is this, is that first, is that there is hope for your marriage. There is hope for your wounded relationship with a family, family member. There's hope. You see, what the gospel does is the gospel is that we have been given grace by God. And because we have been given grace by God, we are therefore able to extend that grace to other people. And so not only is there hope for your marriage, but your marriage is worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Most marriages do not fall apart because two people have irreconcilable differences. That's not why most marriages fall apart. Most marriages fall apart because people aren't even able to resolve the smallest conflicts in a way that's healthy. And so what ends, what ends up starting as a small conflict leads to character assault. And so what ends up happening is like, hey, I know that you forgot to take out the laundry or take the laundry out of the, the dryer. And so I'm going to tell you the three deepest character flaws that you have. This is what happens. We struggle to communicate well. We struggle to resolve conflict. Most problems in marriage can be dealt with if they're addressed early and often. Healthy couples are not couples that do not fight, but are couples that learn how to fight fair. Well, what is a fight? Well, you can think of a fight as this, intense fellowship. That's what a fight is, intense fellowship. Culture in Hollywood will say that marriage is a fairy tale, but marriage is not a fairy tale, it's a fight. And so we're gonna pick up here in chapter five, verse two. Now, remember, we just came off the honeymoon. Last week was, was about sex. And so we just came back from the all-inclusive resort in Cocoa Bay in the, in the Caribbean. And now we're back in Winston-Salem. We're in the apartment. Everybody's back to work. So here we go. This is the bride talking, verse two. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And so we'll stop here. So Solomon gets home after a long day's work and he's tired. And in those days, men and women often had separate bedchambers. And so what he's doing, he's knocking on her door and he wants her to let him in. And you can see from the language that he's using here that he's in a romantic mood. He, he's coming home and he's trying to sweet talk her. He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Now, based on what we've seen from this woman in the past, how do you think she's gonna respond? I mean, this is the woman who literally two verses earlier was saying things like, blow upon my, gar my garden. She was saying, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And so you would think based on what we've seen from her in the past that we're about to see honeymoon 2.0. But that's not what happens. Look here, verse three. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? 
So this is the Hebrew way of saying, I've got a headache. <laughs> She's saying the garden is closed. <laughs> She's saying if you can't get home on time, don't expect anything from me. And so we don't know exactly how long they've been married at this point, but what we do know is that now we have a conflict. He wants sex, she wants sleep. And the first conflict being about sex is not surprising because in the first few years of marriage, the most common conflicts that we see are this, sex, family, money, and free time. Now, I know this, some of you, you entered the marriage relationship and you thought that sex was gonna be easy. You thought that sex was gonna be the most natural thing ever, and there was never gonna be any tension, and all of your wildest dreams are gonna come true. Well, over the last couple of years of talking with tons of newly married couples, I have learned that almost never do expectations with sex line up with reality. And so this conflict is about sex, but it's rooted in both of them being selfish. And this makes total sense because we are selfish. The question is not whether or not you are selfish. The question is to what degree are you selfish? And the choice that you have to make is, am I going to be a servant or am I going to be selfish? Selfish or servant, those are the two options. Selfishness is often at the root of conflict. And so here we are, we have conflict. Now we're gonna ask, what do we do with it? So Solomon, uh, we're picking up in verse four. This is, the, this is the woman talking. She says this. My beloved, which is Solomon, put his hand to the latch. And so what you should notice here is that Solomon's response is calm. He's not banging down the door. He, he's not yelling, he's calm. And he's calmly trying to reach his hand through to unlock the door. And look how she responds. Her heart starts to change. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. And so when she touches the door latch, her hands get covered with myrrh that Solomon left. And so the myrrh, it symbolizes the love that Solomon has for her. And so this is basically like Solomon left a bouquet of flowers on the door. Verse six, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so what we see here is that Solomon's response changes her heart. And so there's two things about Solomon's response that I think that we can learn from. The first is that Solomon's response is calm. Now, who are you in conflict? When it comes to conflict, would you say that you normally respond to conflict calmly? Whenever you're in a conflict, are you a peace breaker? Are you a peacemaker? Or are you a peace, peace breaker, peacemaker, peace faker? Those are the three options. Because here's the thing in conflict. Most of us normally fall into one or three categories. We're either aggressive, we're passive, or we're passive-aggressive. What does the aggressive person do? Some of you are aggressive. Some of you respond to conflict by raising the temperature in the room. You're screaming. You're throwing stuff. You're slamming doors. You're getting confrontational. You're kicking the dog. I know, terrifying, isn't it? But, th but, 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 but this is some of you. This is some of you. And see, normally the person who is aggressive, they are the peace breaker. What does the peace breaker do? The peace breaker wants to attack. The peacebreaker's goal is to win the argument. That, that is all they care about. They just want to win the argument. And how do you know if you're aggressive? Your wife and your kids are walking on eggshells around you. 
your kids, they don't want to get in your way when you're angry because they know that they just, it's best for them to just stay out of the way. And so some of you are aggressive. And by the way, if you are aggressive and you are with someone who's passive, then what can end up happening is they can become even more passive as a result of you being aggressive. And so some are aggressive, some are peace breakers, some are passive. What does the passive person, person do? The passive person withdraws. The passive person wants to, to sweep all the conflict under the rug. They just want to avoid it. The passive person is normally the peace faker. They just want to fake peace. What does the peace faker do? They avoid the conflict. The peace faker wants to escape. They hate conflict. The peace faker says things like, it's okay. I'm okay. Everything's okay. There's no conflict here. And here's how you know you're a peace faker. You fantasize about revenge. You're, you're laying in your bed at night, and you're just fantasizing about telling off your spouse or telling off your boss. And you just daydream about making them feel the frustration that you feel. And the reason you feel this way is because you haven't said anything. You always fail to address the conflict because you sweep it under the rug. And so if you're a peace faker, if you are passive, this tends to lead in multiple different directions. If you are a peace faker and you are married to another peace faker, someone who is also passive, then you might just never really fight about anything. And the problem with this is that if, if both of you are passive and you never have conflict, you might think that your lack of conflict is actually an indicator of health, which is certainly not the case. Healthy marriages are not marriages where there is no conflict. Healthy marriages are marriages where the couple learns to resolve the conflict quickly. And so sometimes people will say, well, we don't really fight, so that must mean we're doing good. It's like, actually, that might not be the case. It might be that you, just, you guys just fail to address things that need to be addressed. And so passive and passive together can lead to no conflict, which is not necessarily good. But if a passive person is with an aggressive person, what can tend to happen is the passive person will just take it and take it and take it and take it until finally they just snap. They just explode. Well, why does this happen? Well, the reason this happens is not normally because your spouse did something so terrible that caused you to explode. That's not normally what happens. What happens is that the first 25 times that your spouse did it, you didn't say anything. And finally, the 26th time they did it, it tipped you over the edge and you snapped. This is the death by a thousand paper cuts idea. And so some of us are aggressive, some of us are passive, and then some of us are passive aggressive. So the passive aggressive person, they are actually aggressive. They're just sneaky about it. This is the person who's letting the trash can overflow because the spouse forgot to take the trash out. The passive-aggressive person is giving you the silent treatment. They're withholding forgiveness. The passive-aggressive man knows that his spouse is trying to apologize to him, but he withholds forgiveness because he wants her to feel it. That is the goal, passive-aggressive. And so we've got aggressive, we've got passive, we've got passive-aggressive. None of these are helpful ways to resolve conflict. I've heard it said before that healthy conflict resolution should look a lot like a friendly game of tennis. So in a friendly game of tennis, what does it look like? You've got two people. The ball, you can picture the ball as being the conflict. And there's dialogue back and forth, nice and easy. We're just having a good time out here. And sure, you're emotional. You might get a little bit emotional here and there. That's fine. But for the most part, you're just back and forth, dialogue. 
And then two things don't happen. One thing doesn't happen is that one person is not spiking the tennis ball as hard as they can when they get frustrated. And then also, no one's just letting the ball just bounce, 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 and then they're, they're taking their racket and going home. Conflict resolution can look like a healthy game of tennis. And the goal of conflict, here's the goal of conflict. The goal of conflict is not to win the argument. That should never be the goal. The goal is to be a peacemaker and to resolve the conflict. Because if you win the argument, then that means that your spouse loses. You don't want your spouse to feel like they're losing. You don't want your your mom or your dad or your kids to feel like they're losing. And so the goal is not to win, but rather to reconcile and for the relationship to be restored. And so we see Solomon's response. It's not aggressive. It's not passive. It's not passive-aggressive. It's calm. And the second thing we see about his response is that it is grace-filled. Solomon's response is grace-filled. So what Solomon does, the way that he responds to being rejected, instead of beating down the door and screaming, what he does is he leaves myrrh on the door, which symbolizes his love for her. And so Solomon is rejected, and instead of responding to his rejection in anger, he responds to his rejection with grace. And how Solomon responds here is a picture of how God responds to us when we reject him. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever would hear my voice I will, and open the door to me, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And in the same way that a door separated Solomon and his wife, our sin separates us from a holy God. And instead of responding to our rejection of him in anger, God instead responds to us with grace and offers us love and forgiveness despite the fact that we don't, don't deserve it. And so I'm sure that some of you might say, well, I would love to respond calmly and with grace, but my husband has never apologized for hardly anything that he's ever done. Well, first of all, he definitely should. But the second thing I want to say is let's think about this. How many sins have you committed in your life that God has forgiven you for that you have never specifically apologized for? Probably most of them. And in fact, Paul addresses this idea of how do we respond when people aren't necessarily sorry. He says this in Romans 12, verse 19. It should be on the screen. You don't have to flip there. Paul says this, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, now again, your spouse is is not your enemy, but this is a helpful principle. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So throwing burning coals on someone's head is sort of a strange picture. It's like, well, what does this mean? Well, what Paul's saying here is that when someone sins against you and you respond graciously, that person will often be overwhelmed by a sense of guilt about what they're doing. And so the gracious response can be like burning coals that wake up the other person to their sin and to their foolishness. A gracious response can awaken the conscience of another person. And then Paul finishes by saying this in verse 21. He says, do not be overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we know this, revenge, revenge never gets you anywhere. Revenge never accomplishes what you want it to. And in fact, it probably even works against what you're trying to do. You might say, well, I can't respond calmly and graciously forever. 
if, if I respond calmly and graciously, then my spouse is never going to change. My, my spouse will never feel conviction. Well, this text actually addresses this idea in verse 7. So chapter 5, verse 7. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. And so the watchmen, what they do is they represent God's authority in the city. And some people think that this is a dream and that the verse is just a metaphor for her being exposed and convicted by God. Now, like I said, I know that some of you want to change your spouse and you want your spouse to feel conviction. And does your spouse need to change? Yes, of course, all of us need to change. All of us need to grow. But the Holy Spirit is the only person who is able to make your spouse feel conviction. Now, should you overlook everything? No, of course. Should you just sweep things under the rug? Of course not. There are certain things in your relationship that you never actually should overlook. And a helpful question to ask whenever you're having conflict or whenever something that your spouse does bothers you is, is what my spouse is, is, what my spouse is doing sinful or is it just strange? Is it sinful or is it just strange? Because certainly your spouse is going to do both, sinful and strange. One of the things that we tell couples in premarital counseling is that the only difference between cute and annoying is time. That thing that, you, that they do in the dating relationship that you just think is really cute, a couple years from now when you're married, not going to be cute anymore. The only difference between cute and annoying is time. And now, if you're doing something strange that really, really bothers your spouse, then maybe out of love for your spouse and out of consideration for them, you could just stop doing it. And so sinful things, of course, stop doing it. But things that are strange that really bother them, if they really just can't get over it, maybe just try to stop doing it. And so Solomon's grace-filled response led to her feeling convicted, which leads to what we see in verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. And so what we see here is that she has changed. What she's doing now is she is remembering all the things that she loves about him. And so now she's going to go into a long description of him, starting in verse 10. Now, as we, before we look here, I want you to think about how you speak about your spouse. Because how you speak about your spouse is so important. For some reason, what we've done as a culture is we've traded in respecting our spouse for being critical of our spouse. Your words about your spouse matter. The whole rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, not true. Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, he says that death and life are in the power of words, or that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so let's, let's look at how she speaks words of life about him, starting in verse 10. She says this, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. And so saying his head is the finest gold is her way of affirming his wisdom and his character. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. And so now she's affirming his physical appearance. So saying that his hair is wavy is her way of telling us that he's a young man. Now, I know that when I say that, some of you say, well, my husband's hair waved goodbye in the 90s. Like, how am I supposed to affirm that? Well, get creative. Maybe you can say something like, my husband's shiny head Reminds me of the radiant sun. <laughs> you can think of something. Verse 12. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mouths of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. 
His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. Don't skip leg day, fellas. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. And so what she's doing here is she's talking about how she admires his physical strength. His physical strength is something that makes her feel protected and comforted by. And so men, your physical strength should only be used to provide security and protection for your sisters in Christ. Never intimidation. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. And so not only is she speaking words of affirmation about their marriage, but she is saying that his mouth is most sweet. Now, this verse, it, it's definitely talking about kissing, but it's also talking about how he speaks to her and how he speaks about her. And I just want to say this again because I can't overstate the importance of the words that you use about your spouse. Jesus says in the book of Luke, he says, out of the abundance of the heart or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here's why that's important. Your words are powerful because your words are the way that you are telling someone else what your heart thinks about them. It's, it's so important that you don't have to wonder if you have a bitter heart. You don't have to wonder if you have a jealous heart or if you have an angry heart. Your words reveal it. And unfortunately, for, for some of us, our lives are marked by words that tear down, words that attack, words that belittle. I always tell couples in premarital counseling that nothing good ever comes out of speaking negatively about your spouse, especially to your family. Because here's what happens. If, if you speak negatively about your spouse to your family, they will never forget it. And what happens most often is that the woman shares something with her mom, and then the mom shares it with the, with the, shares it with the dad. And then before you know it, this whole side of the family doesn't like him anymore and doesn't view him charitably. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that you can't let others in on conflict that you're having with your spouse. That's not what I'm saying. You definitely should have a few trusted Christian friends that you can bring into your circle to walk through these challenges with your spouse with. And so we believe in privacy, not secrecy. But there's a difference between walking through conflict with friends and getting their input and speaking negatively about your spouse. Nothing good ever comes out of speaking negatively about your spouse. Let's keep going to verse 16. Some would say this next line in verse 16 is the theme verse of the whole book. He says this, or she says this, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And so a healthy marriage has to be rooted in friendship. Sex and physical attraction and romance, all those things are great, but they will never sustain the weight of a marriage. And that's one reason why it's silly when you see couples who are dating push all their chips in on physical attraction, because physical attraction is not going to hold up a marriage long term. When I'm talking to college students, one of the things that I'll say, if they're in the dating relationship and they're asking for advice, I'll say, so I know that you feel like you love this person. I know you feel like you love this girl. But do you like her? I think that's an important question. Like, do, does the idea of you guys going to the grocery store for the rest of your life sound fun to you? Because, because marriage is going to be rooted in friendship. I'll also tell them, I'll say, you are going to have to have conflict with someone forever. Do you want her to be that person? 
A healthy marriage has to be rooted in friendship. Solomon says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. So let's pick up in chapter six, verse one. Where has your beloved gone? Almost beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And so here we're gonna see that they reconcile and they come back together. Verse two. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And so what we see here is that the husband and wife have reconciled. And what she's saying here is that our marriage is a covenant and not a contract. You see, covenantal love says, I'm not going anywhere. Covenantal love says, I'm in this for the long haul. You see, this is different from what culture says. Culture says marriage is just a contract that you can get out of if you're not happy anymore. But marriage is a covenant, it's not a contract. And this, by the way, this is why we will not officiate a wedding for a couple if they are gonna have a prenuptial agreement. Well, why? Well, it's, it's because they're viewing marriage as a contract. A couple years ago, one of my best friends, he got drafted in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft by the Miami Marlins, and his signing bonus was $2 million, roughly. And so, young guy in his early 20s, millionaire, in a couple months after he signed and after he got all that money, he got engaged to, and again, my friend, he's a godly man, great guy. And so, you know, after he got engaged, I didn't know exactly who was chirping in his ear. I didn't know exactly what his financial advisor was telling him or, or what was going on. And so I called him one day, and, and, and the first thing I said was, so um, you got a lot of money. Um, how do you feel about tithing? I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. But, the, but what I did actually say is I called him and I said, I said, I just want to go on the record here and say that you should not get a prenuptial agreement. And he responded, he said, he said, oh, I'm not. He said, I'm not going to get one. And the reason why he responded that way is because he viewed marriage as a covenant and not a contract. Covenantal love says I'm not going anywhere. Covenantal love also says we are on the same team. The woman says here, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so whenever Olivia and I have conflict, something that I have found to be so helpful is that I'll walk up to Olivia and I'll just say, hey, I was like, we just need to remember that we are on the same team here. I know that it feels like we're at odds. Like we don't wanna be fighting. No one likes to fight, but we just need to remember we're on the same team. And so because we're on the same team, let's try to work together to resolve this conflict. And so with the time I have left, I wanna give you four practical ways to help resolve conflict. So the first is to communicate early and often. Communicate early and often. Most conflicts can be avoided or ended early if there is early and often communication. There needs to be lots of listening, which doesn't come natural to a lot of us. There needs to be clear expectations given. We cannot assume that our spouses can read our minds. We have to be clear about what we expect. And whenever there is a conflict, what is helpful is to try to resolve the conflict as early as possible. And when you're trying to resolve a conflict, what you can think of is the three T's, timing, tone, and tact. And so timing. So it's not helpful to try to address conflict at awkward times. And one of the problems is, is that some of you like to address conflict at the, the worst time possible. And so maybe it's not the best idea to try to address a conflict when your husband is already late and he's walking out the door. Maybe it's not the best time to address the conflict when your in-laws just came over. And so timing. And then there's tone. Your tone matters. It's important. 
It's not what you, what you say, it's how you say it. So timing, tone, and tact. So tact is, is the, the minimal necessary force in the argument. Tact is how can I say this as graciously and as least abrasively as possible. Timing, tone, and tact. There has to be early and often communication. The second thing is apologize for what you can. Apologize for what you can. So a helpful principle in conflict resolution, first of all, is to never apologize if you think you're right. If you think you're actually right, then don't apologize. Because what can happen is if you're a peace faker, in order to make the conflict go away, what you're going to do is you're just going to apologize and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's just make this go away. But that's not helpful. Don't apologize if you think you're right. But what you can do in any conflict is you can apologize for what you can. And so let's say you and your spouse have a conflict, and let's say that the conflict is 95% their fault. Well, what you can do is you can just take a moment and say, okay, you can look at yourself, you can examine the situation, you can say, all right, surely I've done something to contribute to this. What could I have done differently? And maybe it's just 5%. What you can do in that moment is you can take your 5% to your spouse and say, hey, Maybe you don't say it's just 5%. You can say, hey, I've thought about this. I wish that I had not said it that way. I should have done this a little bit differently. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this again. And so apologize for what you can. Also, with your apologies, they need to be specific. Not long after I got married to Olivia, I learned that she wanted specific apologies. And so I would go up to her and I would would just say, hey, Olivia, I'm sorry. And then she would look at me. She would say, you're sorry for... And I would just say, oh, I hate this. Um, but, then I would, but then I learned over time to be specific with what I was apologizing for, which is very helpful. And so apologize for what you can is the second one. The third is to bring others in. You need to bring others in. So sometimes your conflict is so serious or it's gone on for a long enough period of time where you need to bring others in. And so maybe what you need to do is you need to bring in a couple from your community group or your community group leader. And here's why it's helpful to bring others in. Because what you need in your conflict is you need a non-emotional, non-biased third party observing the situation and speaking into the conflict. And so bringing in friends is helpful. Bringing in our pastoral staff is also helpful. We want to be here for you to walk alongside you during conflict. And then you also might need to bring in counseling. You know, your, your marriage may benefit greatly from you guys going to counseling together. And so you need to bring others in. And then the fourth one is forgiveness must be genuine. Forgiveness must be genuine. Because here's what tends to happen sometimes. You you will say you're sorry and you will say, I forgive you. But for weeks, you won't act as if you've actually forgiven them, which, which shows that you actually haven't forgiven them at all. And so years ago, I heard someone go through what they called the four promises of forgiveness. These are very helpful. And I would encourage you to, if you want to forgive someone, you could say these when you you forgive someone. So the first is, I will not dwell on this incident. The first is, I will not dwell on this incident. So I'm going to do as best I can to, to not be laying in bed at night just dwelling on what happened because I've forgiven you. So I'm not going to dwell on this. The second is, I'm not going to talk to others about this. I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. Now, again, I'm not saying that whenever the conflict is happening that you can't bring in some friends. But what I am saying is that once you have forgiven your spouse of the conflict, then you don't need to continually bring up that conflict to other people. And so I will not dwell on this incident. 
I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. The third one, and this is challenging, I will not bring this incident up in the future and use it against you. This is a big temptation. We say we forgive them, but then two or three months later, we have another conflict. And then we say, well, a couple months ago, you did this. Well, that actually shows that you didn't actually forgive them at all. And so the third promise of forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to bring this incident up in the future and use it against you. And then the last one is that I will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. You see, for, for forgiveness to happen, for reconciliation to happen, there has to be at the deepest level a desire for reconciliation. Something that should be incredibly hopeful to all of you is that if both people desire reconciliation, reconciliation will almost always happen. And for the Christian, the desire for reconciliation comes from remembering how Jesus Christ first had a desire to reconcile you to himself. Because the Bible clearly teaches that you are born by nature in conflict with God. And here's the thing about the conflict between you and God. Who do you think is responsible? It's you. You are responsible. And when it comes to this conflict, you're not responsible for 5%. You're not responsible for 50%. You're not responsible for 95%. you are responsible for all of it. And what Jesus Christ has done is in order for him to reconcile you to himself, he has taken full responsibility for the conflict. A couple weeks ago, I was at a conference and the pastor was giving an illustration about God's wrath and about forgiveness. And what he said was, he said, imagine God's wrath is like a ton of water behind a huge dam. And picture that this dam is broken and the water is starting to trickle through and it's about to just burst. And he says, the non-Christian, they're just a couple hundred yards away from this dam and if the water breaks, they're just gonna be crushed. Well, what Jesus Christ has done is, is he has positioned himself in between God's wrath and the non-Christian. And, and I would like to think that what Jesus Christ extends to each non-Christian is the four promises of forgiveness. And, and actually, what Jesus Christ continually extends to the Christian is the four promises, four promises of forgiveness. Jesus Christ says, I will not dwell on your sin. I will not talk to others about your sin. He says, I will not bring your sin up in the future and use it against you. God says in the book of Isaiah, he says, I will remember your sins no more. And then Jesus says, I will not bring your sin, I will not let your sin stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. We have to understand though, that, that at some point Jesus' hands are gonna fall and forgiveness will no longer be available. But the good news is that there is peace with God that is available today. Peace with God is available to those who repent. Peace with God is available to those who have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, though he was not responsible for the conflict at all, he took on the responsibility fully and paid the penalty that you owed. And so as we go, as you think about who you are in conflict, my question to you is, is what is your next step? For some of you, you need to bring others in. It's time. You need to stop trying to do this by yourselves. You need to bring others in. Bring in your community group leader. Seek professional counseling together. For some of you, you've been a peace breaker for a long time, and you need to just totally re-examine how you respond to conflict, and you need to repent. 
And you need to make a specific apology to some people for, that you have wounded with your abrasiveness and with your aggression. Some of you are peace fakers. And what you need to do is you need to have the difficult conversation. You need to stop avoiding the conflict and you need to try to address it with the goal of reconciling to that person. And then for some of you, what you might need to do, need to do is you might need to extend forgiveness to someone. You know who it is. Whoever's on your mind right now, you need to extend forgiveness. We need to be a church that all the time is remembering how God has been gracious to us, how God has forgiven us. And in response to that, we need to be quick to forgive. We need to be quick to be peacemakers. We need to be quick to pursue reconciliation. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness that you have made available to us in Christ. Father, you are the ultimate peacemaker. Lord, you did not have to take responsibility for our sin, but out of love for each of the pers- each person in this room, you did so willingly and joyfully. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room that are walking through lots of conflict. There's lots of mess. Lord, would you just be gracious? Would you soften hearts? Would you give both people a desire for reconciliation? And would you give them the resources and the people that they need to walk through this conflict with. Father, I pray for damaged relationships, whether it's with, with some people's parents or their kids or in-laws. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to forgive and that we would pursue reconciliation just as you did with us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.